But today we're looking at Luke 16, uh, verse 19. So listen as I read Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Remember that parables are stories that are meant to communicate deep spiritual truths. So we need to be careful not to press the details of any particular parable too far. And there's some things that we can extrapolate from this parable that may not turn out to actually be true, so we want to be careful. This is a story that's meant to communicate certain central spiritual truths. And uh, as we look at it, let's focus on the thrust of it, on the focus of it. W what is the story really about? It's built on contrast. There's a rich man and a poor man. There's heaven and hell. There's this great, uh, great change that happens, and they just become the opposite. So there's the, the contrast is, is, is the main sort of thrust of this, of this story. So we'll look at the chasm first, the division, the separation, the chasm, the great chasm between these two men. And then secondly, we'll look at the reversal of their positions. So the great chasm is number one, and then number two, the great reversal. So this is a two-pointer, as we call them in the business, two-pointer sermon. So uh, usually you get three or four, but this is two. So let's look at the great chasm. Now first, uh, and as I look at it, you see that the gate, the gate has been very important in the story. There is one man who is behind the gate, he's, he's in his world, separated from everybody else, and then there's a man at the gate who's wanting the blessings that are on the other side but is unable to, to get them. So there's a separation, there's a chasm, there's economic chasm between the two. One is very wealthy, right? He's, he's clothed in purple. Uh, purple is a royal color. The reason is because that color was very expensive to, to make. That dye was very expensive to make. And so kings could afford royal robes. Normal people couldn't afford them. They were too expensive. But this is a wealthy man, and he dresses in purple. His undergarments are made of linen. So his underwear is linen, also very expensive. So even his underwear is posh, you see. 
This, this, is, this is a man of means. He doesn't say no to himself. He wants to dress like a king, he does. He wants to wear comfortable underwear, he does. He feasts sumptuously every day. Presumably, even not following uh, the Jewish laws about fasting and the celebration of the Sabbath, he seems to do what he wants. He lives in a, in a gated community. He's, he's separate from everybody else. Uh, presumably, this is, this is a, a pretty big, wealthy house. And he's there, does whatever he wants. He has the means to please himself, lives in unapologetic uh, self-indulgence. Now, enter Lazarus. Lazarus is the opposite. He's a poor man. He is sick. His body is covered with sores. Uh, he can't move very well. Somebody had to bring him to the gate of the rich man. You see, it says that he was laid there. He was brought there so he could beg for money from a man that he knew had much money to give away. And so he's there. He's not able to, to, to even uh, guard off the dogs uh, because they come and, and lick his sores. These are wild dogs, roaming dogs in the streets. These are unclean animals uh, that you don't want them to lick in anything on your body. And yet he's unable to, to resist to protect himself from them. He can't feed himself. He doesn't have any means. He relies totally on the generosity of others. And so one man is rich behind the gate, and the other is at the gate, poor, needy, and sick. And even though uh, there are times in the day that I'm sure they're just yards away from each other, there is obviously a world of difference between the two. You see, the rich man is on the inside, not just on the inside of the wall and the gate, but he's on the inside of life. You see, he, he is where everybody wants to be. He's successful. Uh, he has wealth. He has a standing. He has servants. Uh, he, he's made it. He's living the dream. He's got everything that most people aspire to have. He's self-sufficient. He can do whatever he wants. Nobody can order him around. And, of course, Lazarus is on the outside. He's excluded. He doesn't have any of those advantages. No opportunities. No economic advantages, no wealth, not even food itself. Now notice that this parable is told by Jesus in the context of other teachings that deal with the danger and the power of money. So wealth is important here. In Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus says, You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve both. You can serve money or you can serve God, but you cannot serve God and money together. And here's how wealth, in this particular story, has a tendency to separate and exclude. You see, this wealth simply gives this man an opportunity to do what he wants. Not Most of us, we can't do that. We have other limiting factors, but he doesn't. And so he builds a wall, he builds a gate, he builds a house, he does whatever he wants, eats as much as he wants, wears whatever he wants, he lives a life of self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, and self-indulgence. Wealth enables him to do that. And Jesus is teaching us about the danger of that. Now, I'm going to make a point that every preacher makes talking about this. We're all wealthy, right? We live in a very wealthy country. And we all have more money than most people in the world. And so what do we do with it? That's, that's the challenge. How do we deal with our money? How does our money, your money, separate you from others? 
Do you go to places where people of similar income go to? Do you live in the neighborhood that other people like you live in? That already tells you that you've placed yourself in a particular class, a particular group. You are, in, in, in a way, in a gated community in some way. Who is at the door? Who is at the gate? Who is it that you have excluded from your life by virtue of where you live and how you live and how much money you make? You don't have to be wealthy according to Western standards to be able to do that. You know, we talk about struggling to pay the bills, but come on, look at your bills. Cable, cell phone, right? Those, health insurance or life insurance. Those are not bills that most people in the world know exist. So all of us are wealthy. And so what do we do with it? How do we limit ourselves, exclude others, separate ourselves, isolate ourselves? You know, I, I went to Moody, and this has been 15 or so years ago when I was at Moody, and back in those days there was still a Cabrini Green neighborhood. It's no longer really there. Uh, it's been gentrified and it's all gone and nice now. But when I was there, um, it was still largely uh, a, a two-neighborhood kind of community. There was Cabrini Green, which was the projects um, uh, on one side of Wells Street, and there was another neighborhood, Gold Coast, on the other side of Wells Street, and they were totally different neighborhoods. And they didn't mix, and there was a world of difference, even though they were yards away from each other. And so there were people who made decisions, and they placed themselves in isolation from others because they had money. Uh, when I worked at The Gap, another fun fact about myself, worked at The Gap. Uh, and, <laughs> it's good, good years. And uh, <laughs> I worked with the guy who was from Cabrini-Green. And, and just talking to him, it was, it was so interesting for me. Remember, I, I didn't grow up with any of that. I didn't grow up in this, this city, so I don't know how the city works. And talking to him, just realizing how difficult it was for him to leave the neighborhood to get a job just blocks away. But that move was just gigantic for him because everything was rooted in his community, a poor community, a dysfunctional community. And going into a rich community that doesn't want you to go there, that doesn't accept you, that doesn't, doesn't encourage you to cross those lines is very, very difficult. And so we see that our city is largely a segregated city to this day. Um, reading the history of, of the city and realizing that uh, the, the old Mayor Daly laid out the city in a way that would separate the neighborhoods. He placed the Dan Ryan right where, where the neighborhoods that he didn't want to mix would mix to protect his neighborhood from others who might be moving in who were different. You see, this is how human nature works. We're all, we're all using whatever power we have, whatever resources and advantages we have to, to put those gates, to place others outside of them. So my question to you is whether wealth is a catalyst for that for you or not, maybe other factors, but who is it at the gate of your compound? Who is it that you have excluded from your life that needs you and yet you have chosen not to, not to help them, not to talk to them? Maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker, somebody who you don't have to necessarily interact with. You've chosen not to. And yet they're at the gate, and they need your help. Now, let's look at this economic inequality from God's perspective. And this is totally different from what our culture tells us is true. 
In Luke 16, verse 15, which is just a few verses before our parable starts, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, it says. So they're in the position of the rich man of our parable. And Jesus tells them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Do you see how different God's perspective is uh, from ours. Because you, if you look at this, the chasm between the two characters in the story, and if you would ask anybody in our culture, who, who has the advantage here? Who's better off? Of course the rich man, right? He made it. Money, status, whatever, comfort. He has it. And, and the poor man doesn't. He can't even provide for himself. He's sick. I mean, all those things, we would say, went wrong for him, and other things went right, the rich man. But God says through Jesus that that's a way to justify yourself before men. Sure, you can commend yourself to others by saying, I have achieved something, I am successful, I have this much money. But Jesus says God looks at the heart. And when God looks at the heart, the opposite is true. The rich man is perceived by God as lost. And the poor man is perceived by God as at a great advantage comparatively to the rich man. This is the opposite. This is weird. So the chasm here is even greater than economics. The chasm here is that one lives a self-centered, self-indulgent life that God says is an abomination. The other lives an other-centered life that God welcomes and affirms and encourages. Now granted, the poor man, Lazarus, has to live that life. His external circumstances has placed him in a position where he has to rely on the help of others. He cannot be self-sufficient and self-indulgent anymore. God placed him in a position like that. You know, Lazarus is the only person in Jesus' parables who has a name, and his name means God has helped. God has helped. Now, from the culture's perspective, you look at it. Who, who, who has God helped? Not the poor man. He's dying. The dogs are, are licking his sores. How, how can we say God has helped him? The rich man has it all. Surely God has blessed him. But that's the world's perspective. From God's perspective, he looks at the heart, and God says there's a heart that's other-centered, that's grace-centered, that's looking towards God, and there's another heart that's self-centered and self-indulgent. Which heart does God like? the heart of the poor man. Now remember the old story uh, from 1 Samuel when uh, Samuel the prophet goes to choose the next king of Israel. Uh, Saul has now been rejected by God and, and Samuel is tasked with choosing the next king and he goes to the house of Jesse and the first son, the oldest, comes in and he just, he just looks like a king. He's tall, he's handsome, charismatic. He's the kind of guy that other people would follow. That if there's a war, he would rally the troops. People would follow him into battle. And Samuel is taken by him. Samuel says, well, this, is, this looks like that's the next king. This sure looks like him. And God says, don't look at his appearance. Don't look at his height. God says in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord looks on the heart of these two characters. And one who seems to be 
have it all together according to the world, has a self-centered heart that rejects God. It's a bad heart. It's an evil heart. It's a sinful heart. Now consider the point that Jesus is making here. And let me state it, okay? I want you to hear me. I want you to imagine what everybody else around you would tell you about this. But this is the point Jesus is making. He says, it is better to be a sick beggar with dogs licking your sores than a rich man feasting sumptuously in the safety of his own gated estate. Our culture utterly rejects that statement. It doesn't make any sense to somebody who's not a believer that it would be better to not have anything and to be sick and to be poor and to be on the outside of everything than to be on the inside. But you see, God, who looks at the heart, knows that our greatest problem is not in education or economics or social opportunities. Our greatest problem is found and solved internally in the heart. And so for us, who know this truth, we accept that in God's perspective, it is a great advantage to be deprived of external comfort and opportunity if it means facilitating internal change. For a believer who understands Scripture, who understands the Gospel, we have to agree that it's better for us to be deprived of external circumstances, external comfort, opportunity, if that means that God is working in our hearts internally. For a Christian, that's preferable. We should always go towards that. Now, as you're dealing with your life circumstances, and everybody has issues, everybody's struggling, right? You all have, all have problems, things that are hard in life. This is what we need to do as believers. We must thank God verbally and sincerely from the heart for every difficulty in your life which forces you to get out of yourself, to depend on others, and ultimately to depend on God himself. The beggar, the only person in the parables of Jesus that, that has a name, and the name is significant, knows that. You see, his name is symbolic. Jesus is saying, this is the person whom God has helped. Not the rich man, but the poor man dying at the gate of the rich man. He is the person that God found. He is the person that God came and helped and saved him and changed him from within. And yes, God used poverty and sickness and even death to save him. And for a believer, we should be thankful that God does that. If you look at your life and you say, why am I struggling in this area? Why am I sick? Why am I poor? Why do I have a child with special needs? Whatever you want to throw in there, the reason is because God is working on your heart. Because God is not like man who looks on the outside appearance. God looks on the heart. And our hearts are wicked. They need to be changed. And God is not holding back. Friends, this, this is a gift from God. And, and I want us to be biblical people. People who understand the gospel and submit our minds to it. Because our culture tells us that is not how it is. The sign of blessing is wealth, is status, is education.
But we say, the sign of blessing is what's happening in my heart. And should God choose to use cancer for that, I'm thankful that he does. Should he choose to use any other sickness or bankruptcy or, or a marriage that has fallen apart, I am thankful for that. I know how it sounds, and I, believe me, I'm not saying it flippantly, I'm not taking it lightly. But that is the gospel truth. Because God is after your heart. He's not interested in other things that are superficial. They're going to be gone. But he's interested in your heart. This chasm continues. So we saw that it's economic, but then on the deeper level, it's a chasm between a self-centered person and an other-centered person. But look what happens next. The story goes on, and both men die. The beggar is taken by the angels to feast with Abraham. So he's in heaven. The rich man finds himself in torment in Hades, or hell. Now here's what's remarkable, that even in eternity, the chasm between the rich man and Lazarus remains the same. There's no change in the rich man's treatment and attitude towards Lazarus. He knows him, by the way. Have you noticed that, that he recognizes Lazarus? When he's looking at Abraham, he knows Lazarus is there. He's calling him by name. And he says, Father Abraham, of course Abraham deserves respect in the economy of this rich person's life. And so he addresses Abraham and he says, can you please send Lazarus because I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm hurting here. Can you send him so he can help me? He's not asking Lazarus, he's not talking to him directly. Why? It's not as important. He's, he's the person that could be bossed around. He could, he could be sent to his brothers as an errand boy to tell them what's coming. Do you see how his heart remained the same? He's not, by the way, interestingly enough, he's not asking to be delivered from hell. There's no request here to be released from hell, only for pain to be relieved. Have mercy on me because I'm hurting. Make this pain go away. That's his request. He doesn't want to leave. That's, that's crazy, right? Why doesn't he want to go? Why isn't he changing? Why isn't there any repentance or, or some kind of an understanding that he did something wrong and maybe he can correct it? Why is he treating Lazarus the same way he did before? Well, the reason is because the problem is in the heart and the heart doesn't change. You see, his nature remained the same. His heart is still wicked, it's still self-centered, it's still self-indulgent, and he's going to use others towards himself. And of course, Abraham doesn't want to go along with that. Plus, he says, you know, there's a great chasm between us. Nobody can cross it. It's final. You are where you are. I can't help you. And we are where we are, and we can't cross over to each other's side. Now, I want to be careful here because there are two doctrines that are important here. One is that people who are in hell are there because God chooses for them to be there, because, it's, because God exercises his, his characteristic of wrath and justice, and so sinners deservedly go to hell because God judges them and punishes them. That's true from Scripture. For example, Revelation 21 there's a, a passage about the white throne judgment where God looks at people 
And he looks at his book, and those who are not found in the book are consigned to the lake of fire by God. This is an act of wrath that coming from God. This is important. I want to mention that as a biblical doctrine. But what also is true from our text is that people who are in hell choose to be in hell. You see, this person, this rich man, would rather be in hell than submit to God. His heart is the same. His heart is hard. He doesn't like the pain, but he's not looking for God. He's not looking to change. The terrible truth about hell is that there is no repentance and no contrition in hell. It's startling that we are so bent on sin, that we have so exalted self, that we have so excluded God from our hearts and our lives, that we would rather suffer away from him than submit to his rule. This is how deep sin runs in our hearts. It's surprising to somebody who doesn't know Scripture. But if you've read Scripture, if you understand how deeply we are affected by sin from the very beginning, this is no surprise. We constantly choose against God. We are rebels. We've enthroned ourselves and, and we have rejected God. And of course, even at the threat of hell, we will not submit. Something else needs to happen. You see, we think, just like the rich man, we think, well, if we just had more evidence, if we had more information, if our apologetics was better, if, if we had more charismatic leaders, then maybe we can convince others to follow Christ. That's the rich man's logic. He's saying, you know, why don't you send somebody there? Tell my brothers and sisters that there is hell, so maybe they can do something to avoid this terrible pain I'm in. Again, no mention of God still, but, but somehow maybe they can avoid it. And Abraham says, they already have all the information they need. How? They have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. They have all the information and all the evidence they need. The reason they're not choosing Christ isn't because they need more information. It's because their hearts need to be changed. Now, look, look at what happens uh, with, with Christ later on. He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. By the way, different Lazarus, totally different person. Okay? This Lazarus dies, and, and he's in the tomb for four days. Jesus comes. The body of Lazarus is decomposed, and Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. And do you think everybody now believes in Jesus who saw this? No. In fact, the Pharisees right away start plotting to kill Lazarus again because now he's convincing others to follow Jesus. Yes, some followed, but many didn't. Many opposed it and tried to change the circumstances so Jesus would not be followed. Now what happens is Jesus is his own resurrection. He rises from the dead right away. The chief priests are concocting a new story, a cover-up story, that it's the disciples who stole the body. They know Jesus rose from the dead. Do they believe Jesus? No. Are they followers of Jesus? No. How can it be? The evidence is there. What's the problem? The heart. Heart is unchanged. It's just as self-centered, just as self-indulgent as before. So we're going to explain away the evidence. We're going to forget the information. We're going to do what we want to do. 
just like the rich man did in our story. Matthew Henry says, Circumstances in every age show that no terrors, no arguments can give true repentance without the special grace of God renewing the sinner's heart. For anybody to come to Jesus, it takes the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. Your heart needs to be changed, it needs to be opened up, it needs to be freed from sin so you can understand who Jesus is, so you can choose to follow Jesus. This doesn't happen in our own effort. We are powerless even with all the evidence in the world. None of us would choose Jesus unless the Holy Spirit changes us from within. So that's the chasm. Even in eternity, the chasm between the sinners and the saints remains. The sinners are those who are unchanged, and the saints are those who have found Jesus and been changed by him. Now, let's look at the reversal. So the chasm we looked at now, the great reversal. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Now, it's interesting that the reversal happens. It's, it's almost exactly the opposite. Of course, it's a story. And, and so uh, Lazarus here gets everything that he was missing. He's feasting with Abraham. He's eating sumptuously every day. He's probably wearing nice things. And the rich man received all the bad things now, things that he had he now lost, and, and, and he's in trouble, in anguish, in, in torment. There's a great reversal, just the opposite happens in afterlife. After death, the poor man is vindicated. The righteous is vindicated and comforted, but the rich man is punished. Now, I don't want to press the details of the parable too far, but here are three biblical truths. I'm going to run through them really quickly, but I want to make sure that they're just as obvious to you as they are to me from the text. Number one, what happens here in this world matters in eternity. What happens here matters in eternity. Friends, our decisions that are made here matter. A life without God here results in eternity without God there. In some ways, as the French say, things that change, they stay the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's Yes, things change. There's a great reversal. Now he's in heaven and he's in hell, but the natures are the same, and the natures that are here will remain there. You see, the decisions made here, they will usher you into the reality that those decisions had determined here into eternity. Now, secondly, what happens here will be corrected in eternity. God will set everything right. The righteous will be vindicated the wicked will be punished. So even though we can look at this story and anybody who would see this on the news would say, well, certainly the rich man has it better than the poor man. And God would say, but it's not final. Not everything has happened yet. There's an eternity that's coming. That's, everything is going to be set right. Nobody is going to avoid what is justly theirs. God will make sure everything will be set right. And number three, what happens at death remains final in eternity. What happens at death remains final in eternity. In other words, there's no karma, there's no reincarnation, 
There's no second chance. The chasm is fixed, fixed by God. Those who die in Christ live eternally with God. Those who die outside of Christ live eternally in torment. This is a clear teaching of Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die once, after that is judgment. There's nothing else. It's determined then. It's final, whatever happens at death. So the natural question here is, do you know what will happen to you at the great reversal? Will it be comfort of God's presence or anguish of his judgment? Can you know? How? Well, decisions that are made here are final into eternity. They matter here. So wherever you are here is where you're going to be in eternity. If you're right with Christ here, then you will be right with Christ in eternity. You see, as dramatic and as great as this reversal at death is, the way Jesus describes it here, there's even a greater reversal that had already happened in Lazarus' life. He was taken to the feast, of course symbolizing the eternal celebration of those who believed God's promises like Abraham, because he was already accepted by God during his life. Sure, Lazarus physically died and, 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 and he was carried into God's presence after death, but his spiritual state was already determined long before his death. And in a sense, there's no surprises for him. That's why we don't need to press these details. We don't need to know exactly how it's going to happen. But we can know where you're going to be after death because your decision here matters. Lazarus was not going to come into judgment at death because he had already passed from death to life. He already was converted. Now, how do I know that? How can I claim that? Well, it does work very nicely with my sermon outline, so I'm going with that. But also, it's in the text. Look at the contrast of the story. It's very clear that the two men are juxtaposed. You see the rich man who is self-centered. You see the poor man who is other-centered, has to depend on others. You see one that is nameless, no identity, no connection with God. You see the other one who has a name, and his name means something. His name means God has helped. What does it tell you? He's relying on grace. Something has happened in his life where God came into his life, and now his whole identity has changed. Not just a name, but the whole identity is different. His identity is rooted in God's grace now, in God's help to him. Listen to Augustine. Augustine is very helpful here. He says, Jesus kept quiet about the rich man's name and mentioned the name of the poor man. The rich man's name was thrown around, but God kept quiet about it. The other's name was lost in silence, and God spoke it. Please do not be surprised. God just read out what was written in his book. You see, God who lives in heaven kept quiet about the rich man's name because he did not find it written in heaven. He spoke the poor man's name because he found it written there. Indeed, he gave instructions for it to be written there. Augustine says that Lazarus' name 
had already been written in the book of life. He already experienced God's grace. He was already with God, even though his outward circumstances would make anybody in our culture wonder. But his heart was changed. He was converted. The Holy Spirit already changed his nature. And so when he died, it was simply a continuation of an eternal life he already possessed. There's great comfort in this for us. Knowing that your external circumstances don't determine where you're going to end up in eternity, and that's much more important. That the way the world looks at our lives is not the way God looks at our lives. Lazarus already discovered God's grace. His identity was rooted in God's help towards him. So we conclude with this question. Has your identity been changed by God's grace? Is your name written in the book of life? Have you been cured of self-centeredness and given a new nature? Have you been converted? That is one of the most important questions in the world. Has it happened to you? Has your self-centeredness and self-indulgence been disturbed by the gospel of Christ? And so when God showed up in your life, you've realized you've been worshiping self, and in your old nature you can't do anything about it, and so you throw yourself at the gate of God's mercy, and he opens the gate, and he lets you in because he loves you. Has it happened to you? You are God's child, given a name by God, a family name, given a new identity by God, rooted in his grace. And whatever is happening in your life now, that's parental love, that's parental discipline. God is not leaving you. God is loving you. Conversion happens by grace. Grace comes in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus of whom Moses and the prophets, in fact, all of the Bible, testify. It is Jesus who came to live an utterly other-centered life that we could have never lived on our own. It is Jesus who died a sacrificial death to atone for our sin of dethroning God. It is Jesus who rose from the dead and opened the door, the gate to eternity with God for all who follow him. This is the gospel of grace. Do you believe it? Have you come to Christ and received a new name, new identity, and a new future? Have you dethroned self and enthroned Christ? I'll finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body at the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. That's the gospel. That's our hope that we can reject ourselves and say, I don't want to be self-centered anymore and God has changed my nature and I can embrace him and I can lose everything I have 
but with Christ I have gained everything. Let's pray and come to the table. If you resonate with these words, if you are converted, you come to the table. If you are not converted, come to Jesus. Accept the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. Be changed by His grace.